Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Amita Parrick about her historical novel, The Circus Train. Amita is an author, developer and content creator. Born and raised in Ontario, she earned a Bachelor of Science from the University of Toronto, then spent over a decade working in the tech startup industry in Europe and Canada. In this episode, we discuss how her fascination in magic and love of science inspired The Circus Train how raising the stakes in her novel transformed it into a manuscript agents were interested in, and why she adopts a healthy approach in describing writing as something she does versus it becoming who she is entirely. But first, here's Amita with an excerpt from The Circus Train. As her knowledge grew by leaps and bounds, Lena soon realised that the magic that surrounded her at the circus was just a matter of careful scientific and mathematical calculations. The effortless trajectory with which Johannes Larsen, the trapeze artist, soared across the stage was nothing more than hundreds of hours of practice coupled with the physics of good balance and the mathematics of impeccable timing. The 70-degree angle at which Anna Maria Bianchi, the multi-talented water ballerina, acrobat and contortionist, arched backwards, appearing to defy gravity as she rode bareback on a show pony, could be explained using Newton's third law. The flash of blue fire that burst forth from UC Forsberg's flame juggling sticks was but a simple chemical reaction. A rag affixed to the end was generously soaked in copper chloride. When lit, it blazed a brilliant bright blue. Even her father's tricks were the result of hours of cutting, sawing, building, calculating, practicing, and precision. What other people didn't understand, Lena thought, was that it wasn't magic. It was science. There was a science to everything that her father and everyone else in the circus did, be it sleight of hand, misdirection, or a perfectly timed escape. And it was science where Lena found her passion. Science that thrilled her. Science, Lena thought, was where the real magic lay. Hi, Amita. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, The Circus Train. Hey, Chloe. It's amazing to be here. Thanks for having me. So can you start by telling us what the circus train is about? Yeah, you know, I always find this question really hard because I've got pages and pages of my novel and I'm supposed to, you know, distill it into a little soundbite. But essentially, the circus train tells the story of a young girl named Lena Papadopoulos, um, who after a childhood bout with polio, she uses a wheelchair 
And she's the daughter of an illusionist whose name is Theo. And together they live on board this magnificent train that crisscrosses Europe, um, you know, in the, in the 1930s. But as war approaches, um, you know, things start getting very dark and, and very difficult for the circus and the performers and things. And one day, uh, Lena finds a mysterious Jewish stowaway on board the train and her life is flipped upside down. Wow, that was a perfect introduction to the novel. <laughs> I'd love if you could tell us where your kind of first initial spark of inspiration came for this book. Yeah, so it really was with the characters of Theo and Lena, first of all. So I want to tell the story of a magician father and his daughter uh, before they were Greek, before the time setting was, you know, in and around the Second World War. It was my love of magic. I've always loved magic. Um, it's kind of like books, you know, it transports you to a different world and you forget about everything around you for a period of time. Uh, I've just been fascinated by, by what magicians can do since I was a young kid. And so I wanted to kind of explore that a little bit. Um, so it really was magic that that started it off. But then also my love of science, because I really enjoyed science growing up. I, I still love it. Um, it's what I studied at university. And I think it's kind of magical in and of itself. Like I think about what doctors do and, you know, the discoveries they come up with and the vaccines they create. And I think it's incredible. I think it's as magical as circus magic. <laughs> <laughs> what about this idea then for the circus train and that kind of world building you created then? Where did that idea come from? That took so long. <laughs> that idea was many years in the making. Um, could be a very long answer, but let me let me rewind a little bit. So the reason the time setting was sort of around like, you know, Second World War, I was in London and I got lost trying to find Baker Street Tube Station. And after kind of just wandering around in circles, I found a Greek uh, cultural center that was open. They didn't know it was even there. Um, so I went in and I asked them for directions. They told me where it was. But as I was leaving, I saw a notice, like a poster for a lecture on Greece's involvement in the Second World War happening the following week. And I thought, oh, that sounds really interesting because growing up in Canada and spending a lot of time in um, London, both as a child and then living there later as an adult, it kind of really only got the Canadian, American and British point of views, but it was a world war. So I thought, well, that's fascinating. And I really like history. So I'm going to go. So I went back and the more I learned about it, the more I thought, okay, you know what? I'm putting like the magician father and his daughter, they're going to live in Greece. They're going to live in Thessaloniki and that's where they're going to be. And that's the story. And that was the story. There was no train for four years of writing this book. Wow. Train did not exist at all. <laughs> yeah. And really, so it went between from Thessaloniki, Greece, and then London and a bit of Paris, but also actually Canada, parts of Canada, Toronto and Montreal. So I grew up in Toronto and uh, I just, I love my country. I love, you know, where I'm from and I wanted to bring a little bit of, of Canada into the book. And it just got a lot of interest at first when I was sending it out to agents. And then by the end, people were like, it starts off well, and then it just fizzles out. And so after, you know, I think I'd been sending it out for 18 months or so, or at least a year. And nobody had said yes. They read they read the full, I got a lot of requests for partials, but nobody was like, yes, I want to do this. So I thought, okay, 
I have to make a change. Like I can't keep saying that. Oh, and I never really did this either. I don't, I don't usually like blame agents or think things like, well, they, it's their fault. They can't see how good it is. Like, no, I think that they are smart. They know what they're doing. And um, of course it's a job where personal taste comes into play, but I could, I could take a step back and remove myself enough from what I had created to say like, this is like a structural thing and a plot thing. And you're going to have to figure it out. You need to up the stakes. You need to increase the tension. So I thought, okay, well, what if I actually, instead of having them stay in one place during the Second World War, like which was mostly Thessaloniki, I just put them all on a train and sent them around Europe during the war. Like that would really raise the stakes, right? Especially as it kind of um, increased over the years. So that's what I did. And that was kind of like transformative moment of, mm-hmm. then it, I feel like it really became like the story it is now but it was not easy. <laughs> well, it took a long time, but also I'm really impressed that you seem like you have a a good sense of what's working and what isn't working enough to be able to step away from the book and say, look, I need to make some big changes. I know obviously you had kind of contact with agents and things, but do you think you're a, quite a good judge of, of, I guess, that that really good idea because you had that seed of a really good idea do you think you're you're a good judge of whether your book is doing enough or do you think that's just come of years of writing and rewriting I think it's years of writing and rewriting (laughs) I mean I think now I'm a bit better at um you know because publishing at the end of the day it's it is a business and I know you can probably relate to this too but um, it's one thing to write a beautiful piece of work and it can be so subjective, right? There are so many books that I enjoy that are so different, but that all offer something to me that I really love as a reader. But, you know, especially in traditional publishing, the sales do matter. And so, um, you know, now as I kind of like look forward to potentially writing more, I, I don't know if I like this about myself at this point or I don't, but I will kind of try and bring that like, Hey, does it have like a bit of a hook or, you know, what's this and where's the tension and does it have a good ending? Like all these things that, um, again, you know, one could argue that I'm, you know, commercializing things um, for the sake of like sales. But I actually think if you can tell a good story, then that's okay. Right. And people Mm -hmm. want to read that anyway. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't think I had that ability at the beginning at all because it, then it wouldn't have taken me six <laughs> it took six years to actually you know sign with an agent and sell the book like it was not a not an overnight success mm. I think a lot of authors would probably agree with you and I'd no I know I do in that now I look at books and I can usually books that have done really really well I can usually see why because they've got a great hook or they're really really easy to pitch because they've just got this like irresistible premise. And I think now I still think in the same way creatively, but I almost also in the back of my head is I'm going, what's the elevator pitch? What's the synopsis? Yeah. So I think, and I, I think it is helpful because there, there never comes a point in your journey as a writer where you don't have to pitch anymore. You're always going to have to pitch. Nope. Book. You're always going to have to describe your book. And if you can do it in the most, engaging interesting hooky way then that's probably a a good sign of success I would think it really is I couldn't agree with you more so I'd love to touch back on to your characters because they were your starting point for this novel and two in particular that my heart was just 
totally captured by was oh. Lena Alexandre. Can you tell uh, my listeners a little bit more about both these characters? Can you tell us about how you developed them, where they started? Um, yes, tell us about their characters, please. Yeah, sure. So I'm so glad to hear that you liked uh, Lena and Alexandre because they really kind of continue to live in my heart. I mean, I'm happy I'm done with the book because I, I spent so long on it. I don't need to go back to editing or anything, but um, I really love both of them. Um, so I guess I can start with Lena. So with Lena, I I knew I wanted her to be, um, you know, sort of like a independent, but also vulnerable child trying to find her way in a world that doesn't necessarily accept her for the way she is. And, um, and it's, it's a contrast. It's ironic because she's living on a circus, which if you think about it, that's kind of a place where a lot of people who feel like they don't fit in with normal society. I don't even know how we define normal society these days, but at the time, you know, things were very different, um, you know, for, for people from marginalized communities. Um, and so, would sort of come to the circus, I guess, as a way to escape or use the kinds of skills that wouldn't normally get them a normal job. So for Lena, she doesn't feel like she fits in with any of them because she can't kind of, you know, I guess, physically do the tricks and things in the way that they can. But what I really like about her was that she has her own passions and her own interests. And it was important to me to, you know, give her that agency and not make it feel like she was completely a victim of her circumstances, right? Like she she found things she enjoyed. And I think that that's probably true of a lot of kids, right? If they feel like they can't belong to maybe one group, it's like, it's not like they don't have other interests, right? So um, so she found her passion in, in science and, and medicine and biology and things and kind of grew up wanting to do that. And this is a classic kind of storytelling structure, right? Protagonists want something, obstacles in their way, um, I can't reveal whether or not she overcomes them because that would spoil it for readers and listeners. But um, but that's kind of what I did. I was like, I want to create this nuanced girl who, um, you know, knows what she likes, but also has a bit of hesitation because I love the fact that we so many we see so many strong female characters in books these days. I think it's great, and not just books, film, TV, everywhere. But one of my kind of would say problems but one thing that I personally find difficult and this because of how I feel is that um I'm not like a loud and aggressive person (laughs) um I'm very introverted very quiet no surprise that I enjoy writing because I'm very happy behind my computer not talking to anyone and I just would not have had the gumption that I see a lot of these characters have especially at the age of eight or nine or even as a teen right I think we're still trying to figure ourselves out both females and males and and everybody else. So while I applaud the characters who are kind of like defiant and feisty and standing up for things, I think there's just a lot more nuance um, to each individual than being like, you can only be like confident and airy. I think you can be confident and not be loud. I think you can be quietly confident, right? So so that's kind of how I created Lena. Um, And I wanted, like I said, I wanted her character arc to be satisfying because um, again, just going back to basic storytelling, I think it's important for characters to change over the course of a book. Um, and if, at least with the main character, right? Because I feel like if they don't change or shift or they don't get what they want at the end, or even if they don't, but like there's a good reason why, um, or they get what they need, it's not very satisfying for the reader. 
So I wanted to do that for Lena. And then with Alex, um, he had kind of like a similar arc in the sense that he also had his demons he struggled with. So for anybody listening who isn't familiar with the book, Alex is the Jewish stowaway that Lena saves on board the train. Um, One day she finds him in kind of like the food carriage passed out. And so he ends up um, and he's running from something that um, he doesn't let on what it is. And he ends up becoming Theo's apprentice and he's very good at magic and, you know, kind of like ends up doing quite well in the circus and ends up becoming a really good friend to Lena. And what I love about their relationship is that they're really, really good friends first. And I think they, they kind of push each other, right? They sort of will question like, well, why can't you do this? Or like, why wouldn't you want to do this? Or maybe you could do that. Like he, he just sees her for who she is as opposed to what she can or cannot do in the context of the circus. Um, And then, you know, again, I I can't really say what happens too much in the end, but their friendship ends up becoming a young romance. um, And I love that part. It was very like poignant, um, some very poignant scenes for me to write, Uh, you know, what it's like to be a teenager and kind of falling in love with love quote air quotes there, because (laughs) do you really fall in love when you're 13? I don't know. Um, but yeah, same, same with Alex. Like I said, he had um, things he wanted and demons he had to wrestle with. But I like to think he sort of like made peace with them by the end. Mm, and they do go on a really emotional journey. And I'm not giving any spoilers away, but I will say, because I wrote this on Twitter, so people may have seen it anyway. Tears in my eyes at the end. Totally, totally there. When I was reading the book, my heart was, you know, wrenched by the by the end, but in a, in a good way. And it's such a satisfying um, novel. I wanted to touch on some of the themes of this novel because many of your characters are kind of wrestling with this persecution of them, basically for their identity. And they, a lot of the characters feel like they don't fit in. And like you say, the circus is, is the sort of situation where they found themselves because there are, I guess, a lot of misfits that gather in the circus. How conscious were you when you started writing about these themes? Did you have them in mind when you started writing or did they come from the kind of character work that you did? Uh, a bit of both. So I certainly didn't know how many um, different marginalized groups were sort of like ostracized and targeted um, during like Hitler's regime. But obviously, like throughout the research, I came to understand and know a lot more. And um, it was hard, right? Like that's how I mean, even though I didn't live through that time, or I didn't have any kind of direct relatives um, who had to endure that time period you can't read about it and, you know, go to museums and things and go to um, memoriam sites and things and not feel devastated for lack of a better word, right? I mean, it's absolutely horrible. And I think one of the hard things is that, um, you know, a lot of this stuff is still happening today. Like we still will ostracize groups. There's, you know, hate groups for, for so many people in different communities. And that's sad because it sometimes makes me think like, well, what do we learn from history? Right. And, and, you know, world war two is awful, but then there's so many other things are awful too. There's, you know, Rwandan genocide and Armenia and Turkey, the conflict there. And it's just like, it seems to be a common theme in humanity, (laughs) this idea of just conflict over and over and over again. Um, But yeah, going back to your question, um, I knew a bit about it, obviously, um, 
you know, I knew the Jews were persecuted and certain um, marginalized communities were too, but I, I didn't know the extent. And just talking about people with disabilities, I had no idea that, um, you know, they were kind of targeted um, and that Hitler and and, and his, his people wanted them kind of just like, you know, out. <laughs> so that was tough. It was, it was hard. And it also made me kind of recognize and appreciate my own privilege a lot more, right? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You've got quite a, a vast array of characters in your novel and I was wondering which of your other characters apart from I guess the main two that we've spoken about was the most challenging to write and why um I would say Horace was pretty challenging to write because you know he is I guess the typical antagonist slash villain of the book um but I actually wrote him with a lot of empathy I didn't want him to be completely black and white like he's just an awful person and does this horrible thing and should therefore be punished forever um I wanted like the reason I put in you know some of his backstory and his his rationale behind wanting to start this magnificent circus was because I wanted people to really understand where he was coming from I think villains are the hardest to write any type of like antagonist sort of character can be very tricky to get right and the ones who do it well are the ones like I said that can do it just bringing it back to the idea of doing it with nuance mm -hmm. and I love to use you know something like I'm thinking of of the Joker in Batman and actually you know it's funny to bring up comics but a lot of like comic book villains 
if you go into their backstories, there's actually like a reasoning why they kind of became the way they did, right? And then another, I'm talking about movie now, like a Disney movie, but Cruella, I don't know if you ever saw that, but it was sort of like the making of, you know, Cruella, why she became the way she did type thing. And I found it fascinating. Um, And I was just thinking, so again, with Horace, I thought, well, you know, maybe we all start off kind of the same. And it's really just like our environments and our upbringing and what we're exposed to that has that impact on how we end up. Um, So he was definitely the hardest because I actually have a lot of empathy for him. And most people don't. And I understand why. But because I spent so much time kind of like crafting his story and figuring out how he'd rationalize his choices and decisions, um, I... I think he's a brilliant person and he he did amazing things, a brilliant fictional person. <laughs> and and unfortunately that came at the expense of a lot of, you know, other milestones in his life, like close friendships, a relationship, things like that. And just kind of like a CEO, if you think about it, like a, mm-hmm. a Jeff Bezos or like, you know, Elon Musk and things like on one level, it's like, yes, you obviously are brilliant, but then at what cost, right? <laughs> Your novel is so evocative and I am just in awe of the amount of research you must have done to kind of depict not only the historical setting, but to imagine this circus train world. And I know from your author's note in the back of the book, just how much effort you put into the research and how much work went into this book. Can you tell us about your research and how you approached it? Were you very much a person who kind of, I know you worked on the book for years and years, but did you kind of start out doing a lot of research and then write or was it was it a bit of research writing research writing how did you kind of approach it all it was a bit of research writing research writing um I think for me if I were to sit down and just do a ton of research and then start writing that would have been pretty hard because I I wouldn't know which I guess I didn't know what I didn't know and so I think when I started I tried to loosely plot out kind of like the beginnings of the story and so for example, when I decided it was going to be in Thessaloniki, then that meant that, okay, well, I can narrow my research to at least one city. And if I know it's going to be, you know, they're going to live in this area, great. I can pull up maps from that specific area and just, you know, only focus on the archives that are set in that um, area of the city type thing. Um, because otherwise it's just, I mean, it ends up being mountains of research anyway, but um, it just becomes overwhelming to me again maybe other historical fiction writers write differently but for me I need to have like a very loose idea of what the story is and then I kind of will start painting um you know the rough edges with like a finer paintbrush so for example I'll be like you know walk down the street to her school that will be a line that would be in an early draft and then I'd have to go back and say okay Lena walked down Cassandra to whatever the name of the school was in the first draft. We never see her go to school in Thessaloniki in the current, in the finished book, because I removed all of that. Right. But I had, you know, I'd figured out, okay, well, what school was open at that time? And like, where was it located? And what's the route she would take to get there? And would her father take her at that time? And so it's, I mean, there are all these questions you have to ask. And I'm lucky that um, Thessaloniki is a city that has amazing archives and there were some wonderful people that helped me with completing all this research and also so much of this stuff is now kind of digital and online which was enormously helpful when I especially during COVID when I was trying to kind of you know verify things and I was just stuck at home in one place but 
yeah, so for me, it's kind of like start with a loose plot line and then do a bunch of research, go back, insert it. You're still left with tons on the cutting room floor. And then the other thing too, is you just don't end up using like all of it. Um, but I like to think that maybe I filed it away for another book down the road. That's what I tell myself because I just, I want to be okay with the amount of time I spent. I just think like the unpaid time I spent researching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All those years of, and all those words it's that ended up not so making So many years. Yeah. And it's, it's the detail. I find the details really can shape a novel and give that world and that time of place, that sense of place and kind of setting. So there's a scene where um, during the summer break, her Lena, Alex, and her father are back in Thessaloniki where they would go during the summer breaks. And, you know, she's ordering a soft drink. And it's like, for me, I was like, I need to know what it is. Like, what is it? What's the flavor? And then I'd have to go and figure out, well, did this exist in 1938 or 1939, right? I and mean, there's still things in the book that they actually weren't even invented at the time that I put them in. So got some eagle-eyed readers who've who've let me know <laughs> that my research <laughs> was not very good. Don't set them to that challenge because then you'll get emails you don't want to read. You get <laughs> nitpickers that, you know, find things yeah. that you don't want to be found as wrong. Um, I, I hear from so many historical fiction writers that you're always going to get something wrong and it's just not yeah. worth worrying about. So. Um, and I mean, you made life so much harder for yourself because you decided to have a train moving through multiple countries and in the end you didn't stay in one city you moved all across Europe I mean talk about making life harder for yourself yeah I don't I don't think I would ever do it again but I think (laughs) because I didn't know I didn't know how long it would be when I started I think I like stupidly just assume like oh I'll be done in about six months and I'll have a book deal like no it didn't work out that way I probably <laughs> would have stopped if I'd known how long it would have taken mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you I think I probably would have because I think it's a lot of energy and a lot of effort to put into something that um you know is I'm very proud of it but at the end of the day I don't I wouldn't say it's like you know life-changing um so yeah I don't know I, I I'm in two minds about whether or not I would have done this if I had to do a do-over <laughs> What was it that kept you going then? What was it that kept motivating you? Because I read that you are quite a, I guess, a logical person. You like to plan your work, but this changed so much and you did a lot of rewriting and you cut a lot of words and you changed the direction of the novel. What was it that kept you going? Yeah, really just like sheer kind of force of, not wanting to quit I mean I kind of when I started I just said to myself I'm gonna get this published like I don't care how long it takes it's gonna happen I'm gonna do it so in that way it was sort of easy because it didn't matter what the journey looked like to me because I had that and and I just believed in the story I mean I really did believe in the characters a lot a lot a lot from the first day um and I kind of just in my gut I was like it's gonna work and again I don't know when and I don't know how but it's gonna work but then it's funny I say that because also I clearly very remember um, when we, my agent and I were about to go out on, she was submitting it to publishers. Um, I was so exhausted from the years of work and the years of rejections that I had already like written another book and completely different. I wrote a thriller set in, you know, South London in like 2019 or something. I just like, it couldn't have been more different than Circus Train because I was just tired and kind of disappointed in myself. 
And I had just detached completely from it. I, you know, when she said we're taking it on submission, I thought, okay, that's great. I honestly, in my head, I was like, it's, it's not going to sell. And if it does sell, I'm not going to hear anything for six months. Like it's not going to be an overnight thing. I just wanted to throw it off a cliff because I was like, I never want to see it again. I'm so tired. Um, and then it sold in Canada, um, I think in about three, three and a half weeks or so, um, which was a like, massive surprise. I mean, I genuinely did not, it was the floor. And even now, and I think back on the moment, I'm just like, I get shivers because I'm like surprised. But then also not surprised because like I said, I just, in my gut, I was like, no, I believe in these characters somehow. They're going to find a home somewhere. Um, so yeah, it's a, I know that wasn't a great answer, but it was just a mix of like, I mean, I'm very determined. Like if I want something, I will just put blinders on and that can be bad in a way too, because I just disregard like everything else and I'll be like, I'm going to figure out a way. I think you kind of have to be like that to be a writer. I think that you have to, because yeah, so much is stacked to, yeah. against you. So let's rewind a little bit. Tell us a little bit more about um, how you came to get your agent and your book deal. Cause I know you spent time in the UK and you did a Curtis Brown creative course. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you go on, go from that to getting an agent? Well, the Curtis Brown creative writing course uh, was amazing. I loved it. I recommend it to people if, if they can't afford it because it's, it's not an, ex- it's not a cheap thing to do. It's a couple grand, I think. Um, but I say, and I saved that for, for a year actually. So it took me a year to have enough to actually even like apply to the course. I applied and get in the first time. And then I applied again and I got accepted. And I think it's important to share that because I think sometimes, pe- again, people just kind of see things from the outside and think like, oh yeah, everything was just great and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, I've had a lot of no's. I just kind mm-hmm. of didn't give up. Did the course, fantastic. Met a lot of really great people that I'm still friends with. But yeah, I like definitely was six months and I certainly thought that well, I'll probably be finished the manuscript like six months after this, and then I can get an agent. And as part of the course, we were able to submit our work to agents at Curtis Brown and Conville and Walsh, I believe. Um, and so I did have interest from a couple of agents ultimately, and they were great, you know, like they gave me great feedback. Um, they kind of, and this was over a couple, so it took me, th- I think, three and a half years to finish the manuscript. And then I sent it to, um, you can only send to one agent at a time in an agency. So I like picked one and sent it to them and they were just extremely kind and very helpful. And we sort of worked together a little bit to see if I could get it into, uh, you know, the shape that I think they wanted. Um, ultimately didn't end up working out, but you know, nothing bad to say about them. They've been super helpful. And then the course director, Anna, she actually ended up sending it to another agent. Unfortunately, they passed too. And so around that time, I kind of thought, oh, I better like just start looking for other agents just in case. So I did it the slush pile way. I mean, I didn't have any, I don't work in publishing, so I didn't have any kind of like connections really. Even though I'd done the CB course, I guess the, the connections I made there didn't actually result in an offer of representation. Um, so I just went online and like did that whole thing where you kind of go to an agency page and be like, who wants historical fiction? And you just kind of do it that way. I think I used something called manuscript wishlist is the name. Um, But with that, I don't know if you can still do this, but at the time I used it, you could put in um, a book that has already been published. And because sometimes what agents say is I want the next, um, 
I'm going to say night circus because that was what I'd done. I'd searched for the night circus and I found some agents who really loved that book. And so they were saying things like, I'd love something that's like this, but a bit different or like this, but a little different. Right. And so I queried, um, Oh, I think I probably queried over 50 agents. And again, I got a lot of like requests for full manuscripts. Um, I think probably around 85 to 90% of agents did get back to me asking to read the full, but yeah. Um, in the way, the shape that it was when I got an agent, one agent offered me representation and I said, yes. Um, so yeah, it, uh, it, it just takes one. Everybody listening who's trying to get an agent, but it took me two years. I mean, there was a lot of there's it's, it's again, it's overnight for some people for me, it just wasn't, it was go back to the drawing board and rewrite. And then that takes time because I'm working full time. So I'd be doing it in the evenings and weekends like most writers, right? And then kind of send it out. And then you've got to wait because they can't just read everything like the day they get it. So there's a lot of waiting. Mm. It's so hard. And and thank you for your honesty talking about it because I think a lot of people assume that you, you know, you do one of these prestigious courses and, and obviously um, they're brilliant, but they're not, you know, they're not a gateway into the next step. They They might be helpful, but they might just nudge you a little bit further down the track but then you might still have to put loads of work into getting an agent and then it still might not work out and then you could reach the point where you've got an agent everything's brilliant and then you go out on submission and then you still hear no there's there's no's at every point in the journey and I I hate to say it because it sounds so um doom-mongering but it's hard at every point and I don't think there's ever a point where you can think oh I don't need to worry now because I'm going to get yeses all the no. time there's always a there's always room yeah. to know so how have you how have you coped I mean you've coped um I mean you seem a really resilient determined person through the writing process through getting an agent how have you kind of coped with the ups and downs of the kind of journey to publication and how have you found it have you found it difficult to deal with all the kind of challenges and surprises along the way yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's been easy I don't know if it's been like extraordinarily difficult, but I definitely had um, moments and stretches of time where I've had to sort of just take a step back from everything. I mean, I just mentioned to you before we were chatting actually that I'd taken a step away from social media. And I do that often um, because I find it can just be really like debilitating for me personally. Um, I love seeing like other people's books and kind of talking about that, but like, I feel a bit weird constantly talking about mine. And then I think like, oh, okay, I should be really good. And I can like do posts for all my friends' books and do roundups. And I think I managed to do it like in 2022, like twice possibly. It just takes so much work. And I admire people that can do it because I, I, I'm i not that fast. I'm really not fast with social media and like replying to people and like looking at the notifications and stuff. It's hard. And, and it can also be hard. And I think this is just true of anybody who's on social media is like you're saying, you kind of see other people's highlight reels and I'm probably no different. I mean, I'll probably have to actually post something later today, but um, you just don't know the behind the scenes, right? So when somebody says something like, oh, I got a six figure deal. Well, what does that actually break down to? And like, was it for one book or was it for two books? Like those things matter. And with advances, you know that from traditional publishing, we don't get the full amount up front. They're paid out kind of like in stages. 
So it's, it's really never what it seems. And yet sometimes it is, and that can be great. But, um, but yeah, there's, there's been, there's been ups, there's been downs. I've just really tried to enjoy all the ups and appreciated them. And for the downs, I think, like I said, I just know myself enough to um, take a step back. I giving myself the time to just rest, which is what I've been doing since kind of February, I guess. Um, my book came out in the UK and like worldwide in January of this year. And then I, I did some promo and what I needed to. And then I kind of just thought, all right, I just want to, I just want to rest and sleep and not be involved in this. And it's really bad. I haven't updated my website. I haven't been posting a lot or things, but it's been good too, because um, I, again, personally just needed to remind myself that writing is just something I do. It's not who I am. And so that's what I try to do. And I go to the gym a lot. That helps. Um, I really like working out and doing sports and stuff. And I just find it always clears my head um, that and like I'll meditate, which I know that's maybe that sounds a bit strange, but I actually think meditation is really, really useful. It really helps kind of quiet your mind and just refocus. Mm. Uh, yeah. When you when you say about kind of your identity as a writer and I I read an interview with with you where you'd said that you were very conscious that you don't like to tie your identity to your job and often when we meet people like that's the first thing we say it's like what do you do and I I think that's a really sensible and healthy approach particularly to being a writer because I think it's very hard sometimes to separate the the art of writing and the business side of it and particularly when you really get really hard to yeah. yeah when you when you get that book deal it suddenly becomes this product and it's going to sell and it's going to have marketing and everything like that and and a lot of that is completely outside of our, our control as as writers well, it's mostly out of our control right? yeah but I still find that the vast majority of people want to kind of like define me and a lot of other authors like oh you're an author that's what you do and like and so I don't I don't really try convincing anyone else like I don't try to be like oh but I also do this and like actually I don't think of myself as that I'm just like a person type thing right but <laughs> it's not worth trying to change mm. other people's perceptions I just know who I am at my core and if I ever feel kind of off or that I'm you know getting too caught up in the way a book cover looks or something again that I can't control I just sort of take a step back and I'm like, no, you were fine before all this happened. You'll be fine if it never happens again. That's life. Yeah. And I, I think pretty much nearly every episode of the podcast, I end up speaking to the writer, whether it's um, during the episode or afterwards. And we always seem to repeat the same thing, which is the only thing that we can control is the writing. And that's the only thing really we should spend any time worrying about and try our best yeah. to kind of not worry too much about the other stuff and just concentrate on writing a good book. So on that note, yeah. finally, Amita, can you tell us anything about what you're writing next? Oh, this is a tricky one. Um, So I have been working for a couple months on um, a dual timeline story. So set between kind of Belle Epoque Paris, tail end of Belle Epoque Paris. So like early 1900s and uh, modern day New York. Featuring the daughter of France's most famous horologist um, slash like clockmaker. Um, and I, again, really wanted to create a character where she had a, a bit of a love for like science and, you know, the mechanics and things like that. That was important to me. Um, but then again, didn't necessarily have the agency she may have wanted during that time period. And then I've got another character who lives in like modern day New York dealing with, um, you know, their own set of struggles and things. Um, 
And so that kind of has been the starting point for it. Um, I've only done a little bit of work on it. Um, you know, I'll be totally honest and just say again, because I think it's important to share these things. Um, I did get a bit of feedback from some of my editors and I don't know that they were completely jazzed about the dual timeline thing or that it was necessarily working for them. Um, so th this is part of the process, right? Like, like you just said, there's never a point in your author career where you get away from the nose completely. It's kind of like, not yet slash, all right, this is the kernel of an idea. What can we do to, you know, make it more along the lines of what we see this as the ultimate vision type thing, right? So mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with that because I actually really love what I've put together as it is. So who knows? Maybe it'll it'll be a different book for different publishing apps. I don't know. Um, and then, like I said, I've been kind of just taking a step back from everything to sort of rest and focus a bit on, you know, my full-time job and things. Um, I don't really want to be forced to write stuff. So in a way, I'm, there's a part of me that's kind of feeling relief that I didn't get a two book deal because I think it would have been really difficult to have the pressure of delivering that on top of doing promo for book one and working full-time. So I am, again, I'm just kind of glad that I can, I don't know, maybe it's a silly move because maybe I should be trying to capitalize on the momentum. And we all know how long publishing takes that if I saw something this year, it's not going to come out until 2025, but I'm okay with it. Like I said, I just am kind of like, you know, I've made peace with what I've done. I'm really happy with what I've done. And rather than, I guess, sort of just be constantly looking to what's next, I'm just enjoying what I achieved with Circus Train. And um, I hope I write something else. I would like to, but there's like a tiny part of me that's, you know, I just sometimes think to myself, well, if this is all I ever did, I'd be happy. I'll move on to another project. <laughs> well, I always think, you know, good things are worth waiting for. And if there is another book coming along, it doesn't matter whether it takes you another six years, but it will come. Um, I hope it doesn't. <laughs> it's so well, well, I hope so too, because I want to read whatever the next one's going to be. Um, I enjoyed the Circus Train so much and particularly the kind of emotional core of it, as I said, really moved me and touched me. And um, whatever you do right next to me, if that great idea um, emerges, then uh, I can't wait to read it. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Chloe. That was Amita Parikh talking about her historical novel, The Circus Train, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Mom. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.